1: This is Eric Banks. Our guest today is Clifford Thompson, an essayist and critic who writes about many things, in particular jazz, movies, and American identity. Thompson is the author of four books, including the one we will be discussing today, recently published by The Other Press, titled What It Is, Race, Family, and When Thinking Black Man's Blues. It's an elegant synthesis of personal experience and critical analysis written in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. Thompson is a fellow of the New York Institute for the Humanities. So, Cliff, thank you for coming today and congratulations on the book. Thank you. This is your second memoir. It's memoiristic. I think it's a hybrid form rather than I wouldn't really call it a memoir per se, but I'm curious just about the title, what it is. Can you unpack the title just a bit? Sure, sure.
0: The title has significance for me in a couple of ways. I don't know if the saying has been around for a long time. I've just noticed it in the last few years, but everyone's saying it is what it is, which I used to think of as just kind of a meaningless phrase and just a kind of a product of lazy thought. And then lately I've come to appreciate kind of the wisdom contained in it, you know, and what it is also was a piece of black slang when I grew up in an all black neighborhood in the 1970s. -hmm. So, so the two things kind of came together for me for the title. So... You know, it is what it is, meaning that you look at a situation not as a problem, but just as reality, which you can then deal with.
1: And you grew up in DC? I did. I did. Yeah. Do you want to just start us off a little bit by reading quickly a passage from the book? Sure, sure. Let's see. So this is from the introduction.
0: So before this passage I mentioned the election of Donald Trump. For a black man who has based his life on a belief in treating everyone as an individual and on an identification with America, what is the right response to a successful presidential campaign that brought out xenophobia like lava from a volcano? How do I respond to the fact that the majority of white voters, whom I have refused to hate as a group, supported this man? Should I hold on even tighter to the notion of being an American and fight to protect myself and my country from this menace? Or should I distance myself from a country where so many people seem to have demonstrated that they care nothing about me? Is it time to resign my post as the only non-racist black person in America? Or is now, when my principles are sorely tested, the most crucial time to hold on to them? I had arrived at my beliefs with the help of James Baldwin and Albert Murray. But I began to sense during this crisis that I needed still another writer, not to give me answers, but to serve as a model for how I might find them on my own. That writer is Joan Didion.
1: Well, I want to return in a little bit to those three literary figures because they do sort of preside over the book in many ways. And I know at one time, as I understand it, I think that there was maybe more reflection on Didion in the book than maybe kind of came out in the end. Mm. So we'll talk about that briefly if we can. But a good bit of the book is taken up with a decision you made to talk to a lot of people, and particularly to talk to Trump voters in the wake of the election. Mm-hmm. And as you wrote, you didn't really know any. And right. so yeah. it was a process to think about how you might actually reach them. And you did so, I think, in an interesting way through Facebook. These were somewhat formal interviews you conducted. They gave you a sense or the opportunity to sit across from people you didn't know and whose acquiescence in voting for a man who never distanced himself from the endorsement of the Ku Klux Klan you sought to comprehend.
0: Right. After the election, I really felt the need to understand as much as I could a little bit of what was going on in the country. As I say in the introduction to the book, I have long believed in two things. One is the importance of treating everyone, regardless of skin color or anything like that, as an individual, judging people if you have to judge them as an individual. The other is that I identify with America as a black person because of the central place of black culture in this country and the sacrifices that generations of black Americans have made so that I can live here as a free person. So those two beliefs were challenged in a major way by Donald Trump's election. You know, it it came out that the majority of white voters had supported this man. And so if most whites in America, this land I've decided to identify with, have supported this, what seems to me pretty clearly a, a racist, how do I then feel about this country I call home? So in order to sort that out for myself, I decided to try to figure out where people were coming from in their support for this man. And so I went to different parts of the country. I interviewed a small but fairly disparate group of people, including three Trump supporters and two other individuals. So the kind of smallness of the number of people I interviewed was sort of offset by the in-depth nature of the interviews, I think. We talked a long time,
1: and the interviews were pretty revealing to me. Was it difficult to jump in and talk to people you didn't really know? I mean, I think there were two who had sort of connections through friends, mm-hmm. is that correct? Mm-hmm.
0: That's right, that's right. Yeah, I, I traveled to California and interviewed a couple of people there. And actually, the, the act of sitting down and, and beginning to talk was very easy. They welcomed me into their homes. They were very friendly, which made it all the more surprising, I think, that even though I knew who they had supported, when we started talking about politics, their views were all the more surprising just because of how relaxed the atmosphere was in their homes. And, you know, the people I talked to were very adamant about the fact that they don't make any sort of judgments based on color, you know. And yet, often the attitudes that came out, which I'm not sure they were conscious of, suggest some more
1: negative Mm -hmm. attitudes that they may be aware of. Were they curious about why you would want to have this conversation? They were not asking me a lot of
0: questions. I mean, they seemed to take it on faith. And it's accurate that I just wanted to understand their point of view. Mm -hmm. So, and, and they seemed perfectly willing to give me their point of view. They really didn't ask too many questions about, you know, they knew I was writing a book and that I just wanted to understand where they were coming from. And they kind of proceeded on that basis.
1: Was there a triumphalist sense in the way that they responded
0: One of the interviewees in particular just seemed to spend a lot of time watching Fox News, which he told me without a trace of irony was fair and balanced. It's just gospel, gospel coming through the TV
1: as far as he was concerned. Yeah, it's funny they repeat the banner. It's like if they said, I watch NBC, NBC come and see us or something (laughs) like that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you stuck to, I think it was two guys in California— and one guy in Pittsburgh? Over the phone, actually, with a man in uh, Missouri. Missouri, yeah. okay. Uh-huh. Mixing up my uh, geography, yeah. <laughs> memory from the book. You didn't venture south. I did not, except to talk to another man who was not a Trump supporter. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right, which we'll, which we'll, we'll talk about in mm-hmm. just, to, just yeah. a bit. You got quite a bit, I think, out of these conversations. How did that then come to affect the way that you wrote the rest of the book? I mean, you got the information you were looking for. I don't know how edifying it was. In some ways, I came to
0: understand what it is I wanted to understand in terms of why some people voted the way they did in 2016. It's very easy to get the impression that every Trump supporter is just a die in the wool racist, and I don't doubt that many of them are. However, I think there are other factors at work, and as I lay out in the book, I think some of it is ignorance. There's a strong strain of denial of conditions in this country which you would have to overlook in order to support someone like Trump. But I think the part of things may just be indifference, plain old-fashioned indifference to the concerns of others. So you might be a person who does not respond positively to racist rhetoric, and you may not like that in a candidate, but you may have other interests or what you see as your interests that sort of supersede that issue. So, you know, maybe you think Trump is going to bring back coal mining jobs, and you may not consider yourself a racist, and you might not be somebody who uses the N-word, but if somebody is going to improve the economy in ways that help you, you might just be able to overlook the other stuff.
1: You spent time with a couple of other people in the book. You talked to a social worker from the South Bronx, mm-hmm. and then you talked to a man who was the director of the National African American Gun Association. That's right. That's a right. really interesting figure.
0: Yeah. Philip Smith is his name, the director of the National African American Gun Association, After the 2016 election, when I was thinking about all these issues, I discovered the existence of this group, and just the words fascinated me. The the term African American has been around for at least a generation now, and we use it almost without hearing it. But if you think about the term, it's it's fascinating. You know, you you have on the left side of the hyphen, you have African, which things of African origin are are now just I I feel under attack, and on the right side of the hyphen, you have American, and so. You know, the joining together of these two things is in some ways almost a radical thought, Mm -hmm. you know, and you throw in a gun association with its kind of suggestion of self-defense and the whole thing becomes very interesting. So I I wanted to meet this man and just and just hear what he had to say and Mm -hmm. see what he thought. How does he talk about African-American gun ownership? Well, it's funny because I I had to kind of steer the conversation around to the subject of being an African-American and his thoughts about being an African-American. He was first and foremost concerned with the issue of guns and self-defense. And so, you know, we talked about that for a little bit. But then I tried to assess what he thought, how he perceived being a black American. And I asked if Trump's election had at all made him reconsider the idea of, of identifying with America as a black man. And somewhat to my surprise, his ideas about that had not been shaken at all. You know, he, he strongly identifies as an American. He also has what he called a kind of a spiritual connection to Africa. So I found that very interesting. And he said some things that sort of helped me out, which is that what's important is to consider what you're doing and not what other people think of you, you know. So that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about living in America after the election of Donald Trump. Black people, I think, have this quite understandably paranoia, or Mm -hmm. not even paranoia, I mean, just just fear of what's going to happen and think about uh, the way that others perceive them. And so this was a good reminder to just kind of keep doing what you're doing and be about your own values and, and not worry quite as much about what other people think.
1: I mean, I also thought it was a little interesting that he had taken his family and relocated to Atlanta mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. the West Coast. Right, right. You know, I was curious if he talked about his place in the South at all.
0: Well, he did say that he wanted to go to, to Atlanta to show his, uh, he, he has a family and he wanted to he wanted to expose his children to solid and prosperous black communities, which he succeeded in doing in moving to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So,
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You wrote your first memoir, Twin of Blackness, in a very different political climate, and I wonder how the writing of this book might have inflected in the present tense the ideas that you explored in that book, Mm. particularly your sense of difference and of feeling different, and exploring what it is that made you into an individual and made you different from the people you grew up with. Mm. Right,
0: your Twin of Blackness sort of comes to a stop at the place where what it is kind of jumps off, I guess. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1960s and 1970s. I was born in 1963, and I grew up in an all-black community. And it was lower middle class, and I I grew up in a, a very loving environment. And starting with college, I moved on to sort of, you know, integrated and often mostly white circles. And so that, for the first time, was an instance in which I sort of questioned who I was. Because, you know, if you're in an all-black environment, there's no question about who you are. You're the same as, you know, as everybody around you. But if you move into integrated circles, if you think about it at all, you start to question, well, you know, am I fundamentally like these people? Or am I different? Or how am I different? You know, in ways that go beyond the obvious. And part of that involved my attitude toward being an American in a a country that has a long history of oppression of people of color. So do I identify with America? Do I reject it? What what do I do? So I ended up coming to the conclusion that, as I said a while ago, I've declared myself an American because of what I discovered to be the central place of black culture in in America and because of the sacrifices of people made so that I could live a free life here. Mm -hmm. And so You mentioned that I write a lot about jazz and jazz to me kind of symbolizes a lot of the black American experience because so much of that involves improvisation, which is at the heart of jazz and which I think black people have shown, you know, meeting challenges in ways that had not been done before, you know, Mm -hmm. and examples being the Underground Railroad and the civil rights movement, you know, just meeting formidable challenges with innovation
1: Maybe this is a good place to turn to the figures that you you know spend more time on in the book uh, Baldwin, Albert Murray, and Joan Didion. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Albert Murray for a second. Mm. I, I mean, one of the distinctions you draw very strongly at the beginning is the sort of moving from improvisation to the blues and moving to these two different parts of mm. Murray's writing. Mm.
0: I met Albert Murray in 1994. I was working as an associate editor of uh, Current Biography, which is a, uh, a biographical reference publication. I had recently become a fan of Albert Murray, and I, I, I suggested to the editor of the publication that we profile him, and basically it was a great excuse to, to meet Murray. And so I you know, I wrote a piece about him, and I that got me to his apartment in Harlem, and he welcomed me, and after that I went to his apartment at least a couple of times a year until his death. He died in 2013 at age 97, hmm. yeah. Now, he, he was he was very gracious. At his memorial service, someone suggested that he probably could have written a couple more books if he had been less generous with his time, but yeah, right. he was very
1: supportive of younger people and, and younger writers. And so you spent time with him over those years, mm-hmm. and you were always mm-hmm. in contact with him. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. What does he say about the blues that drew you to
0: use it in the title? Yeah. He wrote a wonderful book, a short book. It's called The Hero and the Blues, the premise of which is that heroes in great works of literature are like singers of the blues in that they confront challenges first by acknowledging those challenges, that being the first step toward overcoming them. And so a blues song for Albert Murray is not simply a lament, but a way of meeting life's challenges first by just stating them, by acknowledging them, as the first step in overcoming them. And I think that's related to the phrase, what it is. You know, it is what it is. A blues song, in a way, is is a way of saying, well, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Now I've got to deal with it. And the first step is just, like, seeing it for what it
1: is. Yeah. Yeah. You also write quite a bit about Baldwin, as you did in Mm -hmm. your last book. What sort of role does he play for you here? So Baldwin was the first public
0: figure I encountered, or at least the first writer, I should say, who seemed to me committed to two things: calling attention to racism and, and prejudice in unsparing terms, but also not being prejudiced himself. These were two very important things to me to have in one person, and so I responded to that. But I also just responded to the beauty of his writing. You know, particularly in his essays, I find a music in those essays that is just gorgeous.
1: And seems very much something he brings into the world. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. so individual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In itself. Mm-hmm. The third figure that is a kind of presence in the book is Joan Didion.
0: Her spirit kind of hovers over the book in a way because the quote about Georgia O'Keeffe, of course, applies very much so to Joan Didion, somebody who who just tries to see things for what they are and without the lens that, you know, is in her own head. And I very much felt that that was a necessary quality to have or to try to have in writing this book, just trying to see things for what they are.
1: As a writer, how do, you, how do you approach that? How do you get rid of that lens in your head, as you said? It's tough. <laughs> I think with the writing, it's just always a process
0: of, you know, with every sentence, of resisting the urge to, you know, spin things the way you want to see them or, or in a rosier light than they really are in, you know. And so it was continuous work in the process of writing the book, but I did the best I could.
1: Well, one of the things I do want to ask you about is rootedness, which Mm. plays such an important part of the book. You write a lot about your sense of being rooted in a number of things. Mm. You know, we finally come to talk about the sort of things that are dangerous about rootedness. Right. And it it becomes something of a two-edged sword. Sure, sure. Do you want to say something about that? Sure. It's very difficult in life
0: to get through without a sense of what I call rootedness, you know, a belief in something or feeling that you are part of something, whether that's a particular community or a religion or political views or what have you. And those things are a great comfort. The price you pay, of course, is that you often don't see things quite for what they are, but you may prejudge things according to whatever type of rootedness you have. So on the one hand, it's important, I think, for a, a writer to be able to see beyond his or her or their rootedness. On the other hand, that is a kind of a psychologically dangerous place to be, you know, to really have an attachment to nothing is not a condition that many people can sustain for very long. That was the challenge I faced in trying to see beyond my own rootedness in writing this book. And the danger, of course, you know, being that that would allow me to see things that I really just didn't want to believe.
1: But I felt I had to take that chance. Mm-hmm. Let's end on this note. At the end of the book, when you met Mr. Smith mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. in Atlanta, you didn't ultimately fire a weapon. Right. And you end the book by visiting a shooting range, which I think I've, I've actually heard, I've never been to, but I've heard a lot of people have been to yeah. uh, in Chelsea, right. kind of surprisingly. And the visit and the experience of firing gun, if you'll pardon it, this pun, it triggers uh, <laughs> an epiphany. you yeah. want to unpack that epiphany a little sure, bit? Sure, sure.
0: While I was in the gun range, I found somewhat to my surprise that I I was not as bad at shooting a rifle as I thought I might be. And I really started to enjoy it. I'm very much in support of gun legislation. And, you know, I think the gun situation in this country is, is, frankly, insane. But in that controlled environment, I thought, well, why not see what this is about and see why people enjoy it? And as I was firing the weapon I, in the book by sort of describing a uh, dark fantasy of being a different sort of person one who gives himself over to more to impulses and is armed and what that might be like. And I, I see this kind of as a way of conjuring up or acknowledging justifiable black anger. And it's not, you know, I, I want to be clear, this is not like a, a call to arms at all. It's just a way of acknowledging the anger that a lot of us feel and how easy it is to, you know, how how easy it can be to give yourself over to that anger. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to thank you for coming down today. Thank you. And uh, congratulations on the book. It's titled What It Is, and it's published by other press. And congratulations on it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at www.nyihumanities.org.